Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. I'm Andy Schmidt, here with Tom Flaherty from City Church and Nick Gibson from High Point Church. Um, We're back with another podcast, and we're doing a podcast on Calvinism, kind of versus Arminianism, or just the two topics we're going to kind of talk through them, because I know this has been a popular one. And our first podcast we ever did was on Can You Lose Your Salvation? That was our first podcast we ever dropped, but I think that we should, I wanted to come back to it anyways, because I think that the first podcast was, it was not that good. So, um, Tom's come, Tom's on again. Thanks for coming on, Tom. Great to be here. Um, so I guess we'll just start right out the gate with kind of like a, a brief overview of both the points of Arminianism and Calvinism. And so Tom, if you want to give a, a brief breakdown of what Arminianism Can is. I, you mind if I pray first? Yeah, yeah. Lord, this is, uh, this whole subject is fraught with strong opinions and we just humble ourselves before you, before your word and before each other. And we, uh, we just want to honor and respect each other. And, uh, and father just, give our reflections in a way that is uh is glorifying to you so would you help us would you guide us and would you help all of us think about these very important things we pray in jesus name amen uh so martin luther and john calvin were great men of God who rescued really the church from superstition and from tradition and brought us back to the word of God. And for that, we have to be very, very grateful to them. Um, In that, they developed a position. Um, Martin Luther called it the awful doctrine. He never systematized it. Um, he just said opposite things from the Bible without ever trying to reconcile them. John Calvin did systematize them and made this, this lens that you see all of scripture through. And we call it Calvinism. Um, some reference it as reformed theology, although there are different versions of Calvinism, but in short, um, it is that God, before the creation of the world, uh, predestined some people to be saved and others to be lost. And um, some try to make it a little gentler by saying, no, he only predestined those who are going to be saved, and he just allows others to be lost. And Calvin was like, you know, no, both glorify God God owed nothing to anyone, and this was the plan from the beginning, and this is why Martin Luther called it the awful doctrine. And uh, they believed it because of Romans chapter 9, and they wanted to be, um, and other places, but mainly Romans 9, that the clay has no right to speak back to the potter, and if this is how the potter has said it, that it, it, it doesn't depend on man who wills or man who chooses, but only on God who has mercy, that that is just how it is. And 
So ours is to humble ourselves, not to question, but to humble ourselves. And, uh, and so in, within the Calvinist Reformed strand, there is this unoffended lovers of God and just this, which I find very attractive about, I refuse to be offended by God. God does things different than how I would. Um, and I, I refuse to be offended by God just because I can't understand him. Um, so, but they put a, they put a shadow on the character of God by defending the word of God. And uh, Jacob Arminius, he's he's one of Calvin's main guy. Um, he's one of his disciples, so it's second generation Calvinist. Um, he said no, um, absolutely on total depravity. Sin, original sin, is true. Depravity is true. But the idea that we are unconditionally elected is not biblical that that we join with God we partner with God by having faith and that the idea of the limited atonement that Christ only died for the sins of the elect that simply wasn't scriptural that Jesus died for everybody that Jesus loves everybody that that grace is offered to everybody that the idea that um, grace is irresistible um, and that if God wants you saved, you're going to be saved. Um, he said, no, grace comes to us, but it can be resisted. And, uh, and therefore, the saints don't automatically persevere. We cooperate with God in our salvation. Um, and so that has been the debate that has raged uh, ever since then. And uh, unless Nick understands it differently, let's hear what Nick says. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I think one of the things that... So let's start with some agreements. Um, Arminianism, historically speaking, is within the strain of Reformed theology. So Roger Olson, who is an Arminian who teaches at Baylor, I think, um, has written a couple of books defending this, that Arminius was responding to Calvin. Arminius was brought up theologically as a Calvinist. He was taught in dogmatic, dogmatics within Calvinistic categories, and he was res responding to Calvin. In Calvinist theology. So in a sense, like this is a argument within the reformed tradition. Like if you go over to Roman Catholics, they're just like, whatever, like, th like a lot of Orthodox Christians and Catholic Christians, they think this whole debate is kind of stupid. They don't agree with it at all. And they don't even think it's important be because it's framed within a certain way of looking at scripture and working through what's called the order of salvation or the structure of salvation within what later became known as the evangelical doctrine of salvation. Like how, like, God creates and man sins and what's the effect of sin and so on. So part of the problem with this is like young people especially always want to sort this out because they're like, well, you know, are we predestined or not? And like if we're predestined, then nothing means anything. And if we're not, then, you know, how do we know anything good will ever happen? Like it, it gets really romantic. But the problem is this is a very, very technical discussion if you get into the literature on this. Because first of all, there's like nine or ten different definitions of what free will is. Like, what, what is free will? Does free will mean you can do either thing? Does it mean that it's 50-50 in your will for you to choose it? So, for example, if you go to get ice cream and there's chocolate ice cream and there's mint chip ice cream, right? Do you know right now which one you're going to get? Because you always get the same one. 
right? So like for me, let's say it was chocolate and vanilla or mint chip and vanilla. I'm always going to get mint chip 100% of the time, every single time. Does that mean I'm not free? Because I'm going to choose it 100% of the time because I like it better, right? So some people have said that that for something to be, for a choice to be truly free, there could be no fundamentally determinative outside influences nor pro, nor they're just nor even their preponderance, right? So like, there's nothing in the world that's that way, right? However, some people will say, yeah, but in the Calvinist perspective, it's a zero percent free will, so that can't be free will. There's this whole very long discussion that Wesley and Arminius and these people get into about the question of what is the effect of sin on the will of natural human beings, because what the reason why Luther wrote the book Bondage of the Will is he wanted to argue to proto-Arminians, so Arminius wasn't even born yet, but there were a number of Christians who said human beings under sin don't have free will in the sense that the natural will that exists in us is is so weakened by sin that we're not going to choose God in the good, right? Tom said, um, Wesley said he was 100% for total depravity. What that means is that Free will can only exist as a state of grace, not as a state of nature with human beings after the fall. So a lot of this discussion becomes, what is the nature of this grace? Is it a determinative grace? Because depravity is so contra-determinative, right, that it binds you in sin. Or is it a preventing grace, which is a old way of saying going before, prevening grace? Arminius made famous the idea of prevenient grace, which was not talked about quite in this way before Arminius. And yet that the idea is, is that there is a grace that precedes your possibility of choosing Christ that God gives to re-enable the state of free will, right? Now, Luther believed that that was complete nonsense. That if you believed that God, you needed God's grace in order to make a free decision, then human beings do not have free will. Because grace is an effect on the will, right? And so you might, so all free will means in that context is God is bringing you back to the possibility of a particular kind of choice. So in that decision, you can be more free. But Luther's like, let's just stipulate humans then don't have free will, right? Does that make sense? But, but that doesn't mean that prevenient grace couldn't be a thing. Prevenient grace is true or false on the basis of whether or not scripture teaches it. And that's where the debate really ends up going. So, Absolutely agreeing, agreeing with Nick here. Um, oftentimes people throw Armenian in with Pelagian, which was a heretic and that fought with Augustine. And he believed, he, he believed there wasn't original sin and that we weren't staying and we could make choices. And so um, I think that's a great starting point. We are not free. <laughs> there is no such thing as free will because of sin. So now it's the nature of grace and salvation and what, what role do we play in our own salvation? And so we're, we're both in agreement here. Um, grace has to come to awaken um, sinners before they can respond to God. Okay, so I want so to kind of then, can we define like, like what does it mean to be predestined and what does it mean to be free willed? in this conversation that we're having right now? Like, can... Okay, so I think Tom will agree with this way of putting it. So predestined literally means to determine beforehand, and elect means to choose. 
the, where the controversy lies is what those words mean specifically in the context of Christian salvation. What has God actually done? The difference between Arminians and Calvinists is, is in the prefix to the word election. So Calvinists tend to, tend to believe in what they call unconditional election. And Arminians believe in what is called conditional election. So the question is, on what basis does God choose who he will choose and save? Right? Unconditional election means that there is nothing in the human person, either in their actions or in their will, that is the cause of God choosing them. So God doesn't look forward into the future at when the human being will exist. So, so he looks in the future, sees you existing, sees that you want to be a good person. You're just, no, you're no good at it because of sin. And so be, because you want to be a good person, he helps you. Or because you do a lot of good deeds, right? That's not right, right? Now, that's, so what Calvin believed is, is that there's, you can't, there's no sense in which God looks forward and foreknows something about the human being who he's electing or not electing and sees something in the human being by which he makes his decision, I will or will not elect this person. In Arminianism, God foreknows, that is, he, he sees forward into the future and sees a possible situation in which through provening grace, that is, grace making the person able to choose, that if they had that opportunity, they would choose Christ. And because he sees that in the future in his own mind, he foreknows it, he then chooses to elect that person. Does that make sense? So election is based on the condition of a foreknowledge of faith in the possible real potential in the mind of God looking forward. Okay. Let me... Does that... Yeah, I I think that's fair. Um, Let me say it a little, maybe a little more... Well, I'm a little more basic than Nick. Let's just... Let's just put it that way. Um, So Calvin believed God predestinated people, that human beings were predestined, and so that he planned beforehand, this one's going to be saved, this one's going to be lost. In the Arminian tradition, what what God planned beforehand was Christ. And he also predestined or preplanned that whoever accepts Christ would be saved. Whoever rejected Christ would be lost. And so one, it's the person and the other, it is the gospel. And now based on foreknowledge that Nick has said, you could say that people are predestined, but it's foreknowledge is very different than predestination foreknowledge is simply God not living in time. Um, what the Arminian would say is God foreknowing something is not causative. God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin, but God did not cause them to sin. He foreknew it. And because he foreknew it, that's why Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world that he decided at that point, I'm going to create, even though I foreknow sin, because I am going to make human, uh, humanity, the whole human story is a story of redemption. It is not a story of perfection. It became a story of redemption. And God knew that from the beginning in his foreknowledge. So Tom, I think part of the controversy here is if you, in the whole course of scripture, there's no place that says that God preordained, elected, or predestined the fall of Adam and Eve. 
That's that's you, we both agree on that, right? That there there's no passage in scripture that said that God predestined Adam and Eve to sin, right? No, He foreknew it though. Right, I agree with you. Okay, so the problem is is that in the scriptures relative to redemption, there seem to be a number of places where that it, it's said differently about salvation. For example, in Romans eight, where it says, "Those God foreknew, He predestined," and one of the, that's one of the verses that holds together the Wesleyan Arminian argument, which is that um, that because foreknowledge in that verse precedes predestination, predestination happens, but it happens after God's foreknowledge. And so therefore election can be conditional. But in neither of these views is, does God not elect people? Now in Arminius's view, he believed in what you kind of what you were saying that God, he was like electing um, like broadly because of how Arminius and people like him argue through Romans nine believing that the way they argue from Malachi one, one quote, which we'll get to, I'm sure. But I think it's important to recognize that like Wesley, for example, who was very Arminian, he believed that individual people were elected by God for salvation. And he, but he just believed the election was conditional and therefore could not be laid at God's feet. Arminius believed that God elected in Jesus Christ to save those who would believe, but he still believed that there was a, I don't know. I don't think Arminius believed in individual definite election but wesley did and i think wesley's view is more defensible uh well uh, and and i said both actually (laughs) that predestination is god planning beforehand that christ would die whosoever believes would be saved whoever rejects would be condemned based on his foreknowledge he can say that person is predestined but but don't you think like for example places like ephesians 1 the referent of election is people are you saying we're just when we read that we're supposed to be smart enough in the logic of the gospel to assume what that means is in Jesus Christ? Kind of the way Bart read Ephesians uh, one. Ephesians, you read because this is in Christ like you, nine times. Uh, right, exactly. One, right? You read Ephesians one through three, and you've got in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's all about being in Christ. The gospel is about um, God's love for all of humanity. The prevenient grace of God calls all humanity. Many are called, few are chosen. The calling and choosing are two different things. Um, all, I believe, all are called. I believe the grace of God has appeared to all people. I believe Jesus died for all people. Um, and that, but we're not all called at the same time. We're not but, all called in the same way. But, but what do you think many are called few are chosen means, if not that God can, in his public will, offer a universal invitation or demand that we make a universal invitation to everyone, but in his secret will know that who which he's effectually called, that he is predestined and he has worked in a certain way so as they experience regeneration. Right. So I... I I do not believe in the effectual call. I do not believe that um, many called means um, this kind of, that it's just not real. There's, there's, there's not a real call um, that, that it's just the, the pretension of a call. But if God's calling you, you for sure will be saved. I absolutely do not believe that. I believe God calls human beings, everyone in different ways at different times. And, and actually that's the basis of judgment. This is that, that, that this is the judgment. 
that um, light has come into the darkness, but men love darkness rather than light. I believe we are judged not for being in darkness. We were born that way, but rather for our response to the light. And I believe grace comes to everybody. Um, okay. Okay. So I'm, I'm so confused already. I, I think I kind of tracked for a little bit, but I think I, I'm, I'm confused. And probably some young people that are listening to it are probably confused. I, what what just happened? I, I don't can you guys like explain everything that you just talked to talked about? Okay, so let me see if I can break this down a little bit. If God from eternity past sees every person in the future and chooses to save some, right? Then what the Calvinist argues is the reason you should believe that functionally well, obviously both of us think you should take a view as scripture teaches it. But the benefit of that view is you understand the supremacy of God. God is first in everything. He chooses how he does stuff. His sovereignty, like, right? Big God, right? The Arminius, Arminian objection to that is, yeah, but it makes God look bad. It makes him look really awful, right? John Wesley in his essay, Predestination Commonly Considered, which I think is still worth reading. I still think it's one of the best essays to read to understand the Arminian position well. He says that that is a love if God loves us that way, it's the sort of love that makes one, one's blood run cold, right? Like it, that sounds terrible. And so what Arminius wanted to do was he wanted to defend God's name and say, that makes God look really bad. Um, it doesn't make him look, it, yeah, it makes him look really powerful, but it makes him look really morally bad. And so shouldn't we rather understand these passages to say that God, um, that if you go to heaven, it is God's doing because only he made it possible through Christ. But if you go to hell, it is your fault. And this way of understanding salvation, that God offers grace to people, he re- rehabilitates their will so that they could choose him, but that they still, it's up to them whether they choose him. And that's what determines whether or not you're saved. That when God works on you and reveals himself, you choose, and if you choose him, you go to heaven. If you don't, you're lost. You were already lost, and now you're more lost, right? Right. The, the Calvinist says, no, everybody is so dead in sin that they require a regeneration. They need to be essentially brought back to life. And if you experience God's grace in that way, it is efficacious. That is, you will believe because, not because you're forced to, but because it's irresistible, right? It's kind of like you go to, if, if, like you go to the ice cream store and you're offered vanilla or mint chip and you're going to p- pick mint chip every time. You were free in choosing the mint chip. Because it, it's because you just think it's. If I say, listen, you can go to the south side of Chicago in the heat of the summer, and you can have your vacation there, or you know you can go to Key West, like you know, like I like you're free to choose. But like if you see the truth, and so one of the things Calvin thought was the beauty of God was so profound that if anybody saw it and they were truly free, they would choose it, and if they don't, then they didn't see it. And um, part of the issue that, that lies at the bottom of this is both Calvinists and Arminians believe at bottom that the beauty of God is so profound that if someone was actually morally free and saw sin for what it was and God for what it was, there, there would be no philosophical free choice because the decision would be made for you. So part of this remains within the, God's veiling of himself within theology. I got to ask a question because is there a difference between see, when God when God like foresees the future and then actually like like I feel like that you God can know what the future holds but not 
not completely control the. You know what I mean? Like not completely. It's not control causative. It. Him yeah. knowing does not cause it. That's what I'm wanting. Right. Okay. That's everybody agrees on that. Yep. Okay. All right. Cool. Then what were you gonna say to what Nick just said? Oh, just I respectfully disagree that a third of the angels fell away. They saw God in the light, and they 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 chose rebellion. And I believe our test is to choose him in the darkness and the, the whole idea of Calvinism, it, it, it really, it, it, to me, it misses the whole point of who we are. We are free moral agents. That's the whole point is that we're not like the trees and the stars and the animals that are pre-programmed to do the will of God, that we are free moral beings. Sin, we've already talked about this, has has stopped that. And so that we cannot choose God without God coming to us first. But what God values most, um, which is why it can be his desire for all to be saved, yet many be lost, is because he is not going to force us to be saved. He invites us to be saved. So are can is it even is it like fair to c- compare then humans to Angels. I mean, because you brought up that the angels fell away, but I don't know if, how can you compare those two things. I'm, I'm wondering, like the angels, they saw God's light, they saw who He was, and they fell we don't, away. We don't really know the angels' story. We don't know about that fall. We we have little references to it. We know it's true, but um, we certainly, I would certainly say that there. That's another example of free will and okay. um, the fact that angels could fall away. Okay. Okay, so I want to go to a question on that I sent you guys, but I think that this is important because this is one of the questions that I like. I hear all the time, and I probably, you guys probably have heard this a million times. But if if we are completely predestined, then how can we be held accountable for our actions? And I know that we kind of just talked about that, but like, do you have an answer for this? Yeah. So this is one of the reasons why. Like I'm supposed to be defending Calvinism today, but I but like I always get kicked out of Calvinist circles, right? Nobody thinks I'm a Calvinist. Who's a Calvinist? And it's because I find this discussion disinteresting. And the reason for that is is because the two propositions that the Bible seems to affirm the most are that God is supreme in salvation, not us. And we are utterly responsible before him. So Part of the problem with believing in a revealed religion, that is not a religion that you try to put together logically, but that where God speaks and shows himself in certain ways, like in Christ and in the scriptures, is you actually in some cases are are starting with the conclusion and working back to the argument, trying to explain it, make sense of it. I'm all for working back as far as we can, though I'm, I don't have a really optimistic view of our reasoning capacity. What we know from scripture is God treats everyone as though they're responsible for what they do and choose even under sin and that God is supreme in salvation. But this is, this is one of the things that John Wesley points out to George Whitfield in his Calvinism calmly considered, which was hilarious because it was an open letter and it had 91 points. <laughs> yeah, it's like 50 or 60 pages long. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's very long, but he says, and and they were great friends. They were, Whitfield and and Wesley were in the Holy Club together, and they were great friends. Wesley preached at Whitfield's funeral, and um, we talked about that last time. But uh, 
he says this in the letter in, in, in Calvinism calmly considered, Mr. Whitfield, you have made God out to be worse than the devil. The devil only tempts people to sin. You have God causing people to sin. Mr. Whitfield, why have the pretense of a judgment? What is the murderer going to say? I mur- Why did you murder? I murdered because I was created by you to murder and I could do nothing other than murder. Why, why have a judgment if human beings aren't accountable for their sin? Right, which is a terrible argument. A terrible argument for somebody who just said, I agree 100% with total depravity. Because the, the Calvinist does not believe that election makes sin and damnation operative, but depravity. But the Wesleyan Arminian and the Arminian, Arminius classical Arminian both believe in depravity. What made the murderer murder, so to speak, from a theological perspective? Well, depravity did. But that's all agreed on. That's stipulated. So how can you differentiate on the basis of something you've stipulated you've agreed on? It doesn't make any sense. Okay. Yeah. Can, I, can I defend that? Okay. As I just said five minutes ago, we're not responsible for our darkness. We're responsible for our response to light. And that's why the sin of the world that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of is that they didn't believe in Jesus. So the, the fact that I chose darkness when it exposed to light makes me responsible for my darkness. I chose it. I was invited out of it and I... I chose to stay in that darkness and therefore I am accountable for those sins. So, so you're saying that you're, you're accountable for all of your sins because you're accountable for turning away from the light when you had the opportunity to, to follow Christ. Not, not like I, I'm kind of getting that you're, you're, we, we all, we sin has to be paid for. Yeah. We either pay for them ourselves or right. we let Jesus pay for them on the cross. Okay. And when I reject Christ, when I reject the light and, and I believe there's general grace as well that can be resisted, which it invites sinful people to make right choices and can make right choices as sinners, um, within that in invites us. Now that's not for salvation, but I do believe that there's a general grace as well. Um, so Accountability is based on light. And and God, Jesus said this about the final judgment. Whoever's been given much, much will be required. And whoever's been given little, little will be required. Okay, so what do you guys tell people then? Like I like I, I just asked a question about predestination and I and that's the big hang up and I got a bunch of my friends who are always talking about this and I, I think it's kind of annoying because I don't know how we can actually know, but what are you supposed to tell people then when when talking about like because I don't know, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily agree with you, Tom. That like what you said, that it, it feels like it contradicts itself in what Nick said about if if you're pre if you're predestined. Um, holy crap! My my brain's running like 500 miles an hour right now. I'm trying to figure this out. But if you're predestined, like how can a murderer be held accountable if God made him murder? Um, and then you're saying that they're not held accountable for that sin but they're they're only held accountable for not following christ okay correct okay so i'm a human being yeah um i've got a sin nature i'm i'm moving towards sin god is inviting me 
the, the Holy Spirit strives with mankind and to call us out, to call us back. God is constantly knocking and revealing and drawing. And um, for me to resist that and to continually resist that and to become hardened to it. And of course, there's not just, there's the grace of the Holy Spirit drawing. There's our own conscience that also is a voice that can be used by God. Um, we, we are accountable for our actions and that's, that's what the judgment, that's why there is a judgment. Um, if I could only sin and didn't have a choice to come out of it, there'd be no point to have a judgment. Okay. Well, I think this goes then to, to Romans nine where Paul, where I feel like Paul is like, I'm going to, I'm going to read Romans nine. You said start at verse 11. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna read I'm gonna read Romans nine fourteen through twenty four. No, you need to read thirteen because that's probably where Thomas answers. Thirteen through twenty four. Okay, um, as it is written, Jake. Yeah, this is the right this is the right one. Okay, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends on not human will or extortion, but on God who, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, <clears throat> and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has uh, mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. You will say to me then, what does, uh, why does he find, still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me th this way? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience? patient vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessel of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called not from the Jews, but only also, but only also from the Gentiles. Every time I used to read this, I always felt like Paul was given a cop out answer. I don't know if that's bad for me to say, but when they asked him, he was like, well, who are you to, to, to say why did God make you this way? But I guess I don't, Tom, do you have like a response to this verse or like what this is talking about, what it means? Sure. Yeah. Um, Paul, there's a division in the church at Rome. There's Gentiles. He's got plenty to say to Gentiles about their stuff. And there are Jews that are clinging to the law and that are, are, are bringing this law-based uh, righteousness. And Paul is on an absolute mission to break down the Jewish mindset. And he says this, listen, It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you desire. It doesn't matter what you choose. Get your own opinion out of this thing. God decides who he's going to have mercy on. He is the potter. 
You're the clay. S- stop bringing your own opinion, your own thought, your, the, your, your way of how you think it is. He says, listen, God could do it any way he wants to. And he gives this hypothetical case. What if God did it this way? And God just said, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to arbitrarily choose these and I'm going to reject these and they're all going to glorify me. What, what response would you have to that? You would have no response because he is God and you are man. He is the potter. You are the clay. Then he brings the conclusion to it. Okay. Here is the conclusion. He, first, he sets it up by breaking down their will. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you desire. It doesn't matter how you think it should be. It only matters how God made it. And here is who God is going to have mercy on. It's it, The Gentiles who did not seek to be justified, he justified them. Why? It doesn't say because they were chosen. It says because of faith. And the Jews that tried to be right by law were rejected. Why? Because they stumbled over the stumbling stone. God has set a stumbling stone in Zion, which is Christ. And whosoever believes in him will be saved. Who will God have mercy on? Whoever believes in Christ. This is how God decided to do it. It is not arbitrary. It could be arbitrary. We would have no, but it is It is that God shows mercy to those who believe in Christ. The section runs all the way to chapter 11, where Paul concludes it again a second time. And he says this in Romans eleven thirty two. He says, so then, the, here's what the conclusion is. God has put all people under disobedience. Everybody is under disobedience. Everybody's under depravity so that he might show mercy to all. God's heart is to save all people. All people will not be saved. Why? Pride stumbles over Jesus. Religion stumbles over Jesus. Our clinging to the law as our own righteousness stumbles over Jesus. But that doesn't mean it's not God's heart and that Christ didn't die for everyone and that his heart was not everyone. So, that's my take on Romans 9. Do you have a take on it? Yes, some of the I think some of the disagreements that Tom and I have over over on some other Christian issues as well come back to the question of when you have two sets of scriptures that seem to be somewhat not in agreement, which ones modify which ones? So for example, in the the uh, the complementarian egalitarian debate, right? There's verses that say there's neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ. And then there are places that say, you know, wives submit to your husbands, or there's this presumption that elders are male. And, you know, there's First Timothy 2 that has a specific reference to men leading the church. And in, the way I see it, right, is I see that the statements on our, our, our equality or our, like, interchangeability are the most general. And then when he's talking about leadership of the church, those are the most specific. And so you use the specific to overrule the general in the particular situation the specific verse is in, Right. I take that principle broadly in my theology, right? So when we come to Romans 9, I think that the general point that Tom's making is absolutely right. The thematic argument of the entire book of Romans is the theological nature of salvation all the way through covering lots of different sub-themes, right? And so I totally agree with Tom. I also agree with Tom that in this section or discourse of the book of Romans, there's a strong emphasis on the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, 
the relationship between the Jews and Gentiles goes all through the book of Romans. But this is a, a strong emphasis. Now, the question is, is there even more than that that God, that God is saying through Paul about his own leadership? And when you start working through these verses, like it, and it talks about Rebecca's son. So, for example, in verse 10, it says, the angel says, the promise was given about this time next year, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. Verse 10. And not only so, but also Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. And then he says this, this is a parenthetical statement, in order that God's purpose in election might stand or continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, which is in Genesis. And then it, it, and then it says, as it is written, Jacob, I have loved and Esau, I have hated, Right. At that point, you get the rhetorical question. Well, what should we say then? Is God unjust? Now, the, the reason why that rhetorical question is there is that Paul is anticipating the objection, right? That's not right for God to do that. But what's not right for God to do? And the answer is to sustain his own supremacy in election, that is his choice, without reference to the will or actions of any person, which is demonstrated by his election of Jacob over Esau before they were ever born. That's the claim. The hypothetical statement Tom referred to is in the hypothetical, but it's later in the passage. And it, it's one possible way to think about a counterfactual in your mind. Like if you're like, okay, this is a difficult thing to think about. What's a way you could think about it that would solve it? Because theologically speaking, if God presents you with a problem and you can think of even one hypothetical that might be true that would make the problem go away, then you can't blame God. Because that means God has at least one way he could have carried it out where he wouldn't blame him. And he deserves the benefit of the doubt as, as God. And right, it's only if you couldn't think of any hypothetical that you might have the opportunity to say something negative against God. And so the hypothetical that Paul offers is a highly severe one. And you could argue because it's conditional that it might not be the actual one. But that comes later in the passage. Before this, he gives three, I think it's three different examples of God's absolute control in choosing to elect things. That is Jacob over Esau, Pharaoh's hardening of heart, and so on. And so that specific, and it specifically says, I like it focuses on this idea where God, where he, where he says, where Moses says that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he will have compassion. Now, in this context, this seems to be pointing to his work among people directly, not contingent upon the broad gospel message that, that Tom is referring to. I, I think that, that Tom is inserting that from the general context. So it's not like stupid or something for him to do that. That's a judgment call. Can you take the general context of, of general salvation as Paul, as Tom characterizes it for the whole of the New Testament and insert it here as the fundamental principle by which to interpret the whole passage as the fulcrum, which is not mentioned? Or do you take this like in its particular, in a more narrow view and I think, I think this has to be interpreted in a more narrow view. Let me give you one quick anecdote before, before we let Tom. So most people know that John Piper is like a raving Calvinist, okay? Like he's always been Calvinist. He's super Calvinist, unapologetically being Calvinist. Well, his dad was an Arminian evangelist. And, and Piper was an Arminian when he went to Fuller. And he wrote his like seminary dissertation on Romans 9. And he said, I read Romans 9 for a year and I ended up, Romans 9 is a tiger and I ended up in the belly of that tiger. When I was in seminary, I, re I read Piper's book on Romans 9 called The Justification of God. I've read this passage hundreds of times. I've read every Arminian argument relative to this passage that I know of. 
and I worked through it to see if I, it could work exegetically, like with the sentence structure and the syntax and the context. I just don't think it can. And maybe I'm wrong. That's always possible, my wife says. But I don't think so. I've spent just hours and hours and hours pouring over this passage. Because I think if you can explain away this passage, you got a really good shot at explaining away Calvinism. Not a great one, but a good one. I just don't think it works. Okay. I think, well, you know what? I've already said what I think. I, I think those three examples of personal uh, with Pharaoh and Jacob and Esau, he is breaking down the mindset that they have a choice in the matter. You guys don't have a choice. I don't care what you think. God is in charge. He chooses one. He rejects another. He, he is God. He is the potter. He is supreme in salvation. He set up who's going to be saved. And then the linchpin is the conclusion. How you can read the argument without going... You got to start with a conclusion. The conclusion is... This is who God, this is how God made it. This is who God's going to elect. Those that are in Christ, those that believe will not be ashamed. He has set up a stumbling stone. He prophesied it in Isaiah that he was going to set up this stumbling stone in Psalms. It's the cornerstone that the builders are going to reject that this was all prophesied beforehand. The Jews were going to have a horrible problem with this because to be Jewish was the law. Everything was the law. How you could go against the law and have a salvation that existed outside of the law was almost impossible for a Jew to grasp. And so Paul is using their scriptures to beat them down and say, guys, this is not about what you think. This is about how God made it. And God elects those that believe in Christ. He is the stumbling stone to the human race. And, and you, 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 you read the conclusion and the conclusion helps put the, I will admit the argument, obviously Romans nine, that's where Calvinism comes from is Roman nine, that it is the lens that the whole Bible is read through. It is, it, it is what provides confirmation bias for Calvinists so that they can't see God's love for all people and that God's inviting everybody all the time to be saved because Romans nine. Should I just say disagree 10 times or do you want me to say why? I, I, so, so if you, if you, okay, that argument just doesn't work. Right. And so, so you can argue for Calvinism without reference to Romans nine. I think it is true that Romans nine figures heavily in um, this argument. Okay. In the argument, if you treat the if st- the if statement, the like, what if God did it this way? In Tom's argument, you must assume the if argument isn't true, that it's false, in order for his argument to work. But the whole point of the if argument is, if this is even true, then you don't have an argument anymore to, to attack God. You... Whatever you decide is the conclusion, the if statement has to be potentially true. If you come to any conclusion where the if statement is at least potentially true, your conclusion is wrong. And the if statement is essentially Calvinism. So when you get to the end, if you believe what Tom believes, you have to believe that God can do what Tom is saying through a Calvinist means. Now, he could still be right that Arminianism is true. 
But you certainly cannot rule out the beans here and the specifics oh, and of I it. And I don't rule that out. I, I absolutely agree with the potter and the clay. And if that's how it is and Calvinism is true, then God is God and he did it that way. But it absolutely. seems like a very strange argument to argue all the way through Romans 9, particularly to people. God does what he wants with people. God does what he wants with people. He has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and compassion on whom he wants to have compassion. And then every succeeding example is how he works with people, with people, with people, with people. And then you go, see, it's all about this dynamic in the gospel that has nothing to do with people. Like dude, individual people, dude. It has everything to do with people. It, well, he right, gi- but obliquely, not why, directly. He gives why the, the argument Gentile, is direct. Why the Gentiles are in because of their personal faith. The Jews are out because they are still seeking it by law, and the invitation to people is to put their trust in Christ. This is who God shows mercy to. To who He's put the stumbling stone. Whoever trusts in that stumbling stone is going to be saved. It's very personal. But th- I didn't say personal. I said about people. Like it's, like, it's all about people. But no, see, it's all about who's God is going to no, show see, mercy part to. Of the di- part of the discrepancy here just goes back to the, the words election and predestination. Those words don't mean like this will happen and then it's we call it election. Election means to choose. Predestined means to determine beforehand. Like you can't say, okay, I'm going to make this thing. I'm going to put it into motion. And then whatever happens is what I chose. God, the context in which predestination and election are used in the New Testament are not relevant, are not relative to the method by which God determines who's saved. It is relative to his choice of who is saved in the exegetical context. Now, like, if that wasn't true, I would agree with you. You're, I mean, listen, Arminianism, if I had to defend one of these, like if I got to make up what I wanted about Christian faith and I was going to defend it like in the university with a bunch of atheists, like Arminianism is like defending a fort and Calvinism is like defending a barley field. Like, it's so much easier to defend. I totally can see that. The question is, is interpretationally, do these texts mean that? And do these words, election and predestination, mean that? I just don't think they do. In Matthew 22, Nick, the king sends out an invitation. And... He sends it out first to one group of people. They reject it. Then he sends out these invitations to others, and and some, um, and they and they come in, and then one is rejected because he didn't he didn't meet the requirement. And then the conclusion is, is that many are called and few are chosen. The king is the one that issued the call. It's a real invitation. He really invited those people. Um, and those who were chosen were the ones that said yes to his invitation. Now, even one was rejected because he didn't meet the king's requirement. But so in, in God's sovereignty, he sends out the invitation in God's sovereignty. He decides the terms of which he will choose or those that will come, which is in Christ and he, he can still reject those that don't embrace Christ if they don't have on Christ's righteousness. Um, to me, this is, this is what's at stake. It's, here's here's, here's the, the frustration with, with Calvinism. Let's just take two simple passages, 1 Timothy 2.4 and 2 Peter 3.9, um, that it is God's will that all people 
be saved. One is, is that it's God's will that all come to repentance and to the knowledge of the truth, that, that, that this is the heart of God. God is reaching out to all human beings. Christ died for the whole world. The ministry of reconciliation is this, that God is no longer holding the sins of the world against them, that, that it's, there's an open door to come to Christ. The only way that you narrow that is by starting with Romans 9 and then having to bring that bias to the rest of the Bible. Okay, when you say bring the bias of Romans 9 to the rest of the Bible, I assume what you mean by that, my wrong interpretation of Romans 9 to the rest of the Bible, not right. right. No, I'm, I'm saying John Calvin, John Calvin and Martin Luther's, I do believe it's a wrong interpretation. Right. I believe right. they I just were, want to make sure our listeners don't think, you think Romans 9 shouldn't be in the Bible. Oh, no, I, no. You I, think their interpretation is wrong and no, should be used to s- interpret the rest of the Bible. Uh, uh, of course. Yeah. Okay, so, so I see, I think that the, I think that the 1 Timothy 2, 3, Second Peter three nine argument proves too much, not too little. Um, if so, if you start with a premise, God wants all people to be saved. Then you can also start with a counterfactual that's just as damning toward God. Could God have done more so that all men would be saved? And it's very easy to come up with numerous counterfactuals for an all powerful being where he could have done more for all men to be saved. If that was the only thing he wanted, and nothing else curtailed, controlled, directed any of that, I mean, God could have just. In theory, I mean, if he would rather all men be saved than all men be free or responsible, he could have just made us all saved. And so he didn't leave more responsibility to us. He didn't make that the basis of anything relative to salvation. And he just got us all saved. Right. And I, I already said that. At most the people believe I, God could do that. I already he, said that at the beginning, that his highest will is that we be free. This is what we give him. We're free moral right. agents. I, and I think that collapses the entire argument that you can use those two verses to say that Calvinism is wrong. Because clearly God wants more than just all men to be saved. And we don't know what all of those mores are. And that when you work those into what God does to invite all men to be saved, we have no idea what that would do to the process. And so it's perfectly possible that God can be completely honest in wanting all men to be saved and Calvinism also be true. Those are not fundamentally divided. Why is it clear that God wants more than all men to be saved? You just said he wants more than that, right? Well, what I'm saying is, is that okay, if you take this idea, God, God wants all people to be saved, right? That's true. But there's at least two verses, these two verses we just quoted that said that. Okay, now the question is, all right, so then why, why isn't universalism true? Like, why aren't all men saved? Could God, in his omnipotence, save everyone? Now, virtually all Calvinists I know, of course, would say yes. Of course. Of course, God, God could have changed. He could have made us not in his image, and then we couldn't be damnable. He could have, made, you know, he could have decided to override our free will for our eternal good, right? Like John Feiberg, a Calvinist professor, he said, listen, if the difference is me having to be a creature of free will or me being even spiritually raped or ravished by God such that I would believe because he overpowers me, for God's sake, overpower me. Like, how stupid do you have to be to not want to be forced? Like, listen, if I was being held by terrorists and I was going to be burned alive or gassed because, and like somebody came to rescue me and I didn't want to go, I would want that person to knock me out and carry me out of there, right? And yet God does not do that in the Calvinist, among the Calvinists. Well, Calvinists are much closer to that with efficacious grace where when God comes with his grace, it's so powerful. You get saved, right? It's more like that rescue. I'm pulling you out because depravity is too much. And the Arminian is kind of like, well, well you could leave. I could take you from the terrorists, but Oh, you want to stay? That's fine. Right? So like, therefore you have to, 
you have to admit into evidence this idea that God wants more things. He does want all men to be saved. But he also wants more things than that. Like he wants us to keep bearing the image of God and therefore have to make moral choices and therefore be morally responsible and therefore bear <laughs> free will and so on. Right? There's all these other things that are true also. And as those other things are true, God had to concoct an incredibly creative way to save human beings. That the second person of the Trinity becomes a human being, lives a... Pr- like, it, like, even the angels and demons didn't understand what was happening when it was happening. It was so weird. Because that's how, like, profoundly wise the perfection of God and salvation is, right? Because of, because of the great learning of Calvinists, they they just they they say things that basic people it just it doesn't how can it possibly be that god wants all people to be saved when he predestined that some would go to hell forever how could god possibly want all men to be saved when he concocts a system in which very few of them i mean like not very many of them will be saved i mean arminianism does no better like if you want me to switch my view give me a better option still a huge portion i mean jesus said okay the road to salvation okay. is okay. narrow okay let's arminianism doesn't fix that okay right let's start with this um god wants all people to be free he wants all people to be able to respond to him i don't see how that's any better i mean damnation makes us incapable of responding to god i mean like in so does depravity god was wanting god wanting us to be free i mean i i do think god wanting us to be free is an inhibitor to all men being saved which i think we both think that which is why god visits each one with grace which god sends that invitation to everyone in the human race why because he wants all to come to the banquet but he doesn't want to force them to the banquet do you believe those who never hear the gospel in their life receive provening grace I don't know where it says, I, and I'm, 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 I may be wrong, but doesn't scripture say that everyone hears or hears, maybe not hears the gospel, but knows God exists or in some capacity, like everybody who's on. Because of creation, because of conscience. Um, yeah, Romans and, Romans 2 says that everybody, and, Romans 1 and 2 says everybody should. Right, does. And, and, and the Bible also makes it clear that people are not going to be judged for what they didn't have. It says... It, to whom has been given much, much will be required, and to whom has been given little, little will be required. So, how how that works, we don't really know. Except all that be saved, that are saved, from eternal, from the beginning of the world till the end of time, whatever country they're from, will be, have been saved through Christ, <laughs> whether they knew His name or not. Like the the sinner that repentance that had mercy on me. And Jesus said his sins were forgiven. He didn't name the name of Jesus. He was certainly saved through Christ. Sins can only be forgiven through Christ. Um, so how that works, we're not sure, except Jesus is the only name by where my people can be saved. He's the appointed name, right? Yeah. So I, I think So this is one of the reasons why I said at the beginning that like Calvinists don't accept me and Armenians don't accept me. Because I just frankly believe you don't really get much with either of these views. And I don't think either of them are probably correct. Like Calvinism does a good job emphasizing the scriptural teaching that God is supreme in all things, including in salvation. If you are saved, it is because of the mercy of God, right? Tom believes that? I believe that, right? Arminianism does a good job of saying you, you should not blame God 
for your own lack of responsibility and willingness to follow him. Like when God judges you, you're not going to be able to be like, well, I was depraved and I didn't get provenient grace or regenerating grace. So God, this is your fault. You know, darn stinking well in your own life that you don't act anywhere near as good as you could. You choose your selfishness all the time, but you think, you think you're going to blame God for that in judgment. You're gonna be like, God, I can't believe you. Blah, blah, blah. So Arminianism does a good job of demonstrating that God is not at fault in our damnation. However, it comes about. Right. And so you are responsible before God. Now, what this leads me to believe personally is that we don't really understand human will. I, I just don't think we understand it. I don't think we understand what the bondage of the will really is. Because I think Cal, if you talk to Catholics and Orthodox Christians, they believe that you can do a lot more through unaided will than Protestants usually do. I don't think they're entirely right. I think they're probably partially right in a way. I just like we talk, we throw these words around like total depravity and provenient grace and blah, 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 blah. And I know what we generally mean. I think that they're functionally useful generally, but I don't think any of us really understands how human will operates, how God works in that will exactly. What we know is when God judges us, he will have so worked in our will in such a way as to not take away our responsibility before him for our own choices. And he will have so worked in our will graciously that if we are saved, we have him to thank for it. And then in doing so, he determined beforehand that that should be done. But even in predestination and election, neither one of these views gets you what you want. Calvinism does not get you perfect assurance because you could find out in the end that you were never really saved because you didn't persevere. And Arminianism doesn't always make people super careful about not losing their salvation. And sometimes they don't have a big enough view of God. So like in my experience as a pastor and as a theologian, as a theologian, I am unsatisfied with both of these views. And as a pastor, I don't think either of them gets you all that much. So that's like what, like, yeah, like I'll argue back and forth on this. And I'm not going to say, I think Romans says something I don't think it says, but at the same time, I feel like I've seen young Christians lose their faith thinking that Calvinism and Arminianism in the imperfect ways they understand it are somehow their only options and they realize that there's something wrong with both of them. And so Christianity is now stupid. And that's ridiculous. These are, the, these are like one strand of Christian theology that came out of the 16, you know, 15 and 1600s that where people were trying to understand how big God was and to put, put these things in proper perspective. And I just, I think they're inadequate and I, I agree with the with the deceased um, Jewish psychotherapist Edwin Friedman when he said, "Whenever you have two ideas that are super important at loggerheads with each other in, in an insoluble way, you need you need like a Copernican revolution. Like like you don't understand it, or you wouldn't have this absolute contradiction." G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic, said, "There are certain mysteries that are full paradoxes in the Christian faith. That if you accept them, everything else in Christianity makes sense. And if you reject them, you'll drive yourself nuts, and you can't be a Christian." One of those paradoxes is Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And one of them is, is that God is totally sovereign and you are completely responsible. And if you will accept those because God declares them in his written word, like things proceed well. And if you won't, you'll go crazy. I always knew Nick was not a classic Calvinist. I, I, he's always had a lot on human responsibility. But I want to just say one last thing. I realize we're probably running out of time here. John Calvin made the sovereignty of God his glory. And 
that that his supremacy is his is his glory and so it's kind of before all things and god himself when he revealed his glory to moses did not call it his sovereignty he said i'm going to let all of my goodness pass before you and i believe god is good i believe he's all good i believe that um that the center of his glory is his goodness. The idea that he created some people specifically with a plan of them being tormented in hell. Um, I don't even think hell was created for mankind. It, it, it's called the place where Satan and his angels go. The lake of fire is called the place. The, those on his left, he doesn't have a place for them. The people on the right go into the kingdom that was prepared for you by from the beginning of, of the world. To the people on the left, he has to say, go to the place that was prepared not for you, but for Satan and his angels. Um, I believe God loves people. I believe Jesus died for people, and he wants he wants them saved, and that we are carriers of that, and, uh, and, and that that's... That's just the center of, of the gospel is the is the goodness of God. Okay, so I wanted to talk about one more thing because I think that it's important. To, I think it might be important to talk about this at the end. Um, I've had, so I think with, with young people, I've had one friend who's committed suicide and this was a big, bit, like a big thing that he couldn't figure out. And then I've had a couple other friends who are Christians who who have gotten to the point where they wanted to commit suicide and haven't and I I know this is like a big thing in with young people and I've always thought it was kind of stupid because to me in every I, I don't understand I feel like I got, just got hit by a train in the last hour and a half I, I still don't understand but either of them and I honestly like don't really care um, because all that I've seen come out of this um, conversation or not this conversation in particular but the conversation throughout my life of Calvinism and Arminianism has just been people who either quit on the faith because they can't figure it out or people who don't, don't share the gospel because they think it's useless. Um, and to me, it seems like it's been mostly a damaging conversation throughout my life. And, and, that, and that might be different for other people. But I think my question for you guys is like, what, what do you, what do you say to young people then who, who are like, or not, and not even young, there's like older people, all people throughout all walks of their faith who can't figure this out and they're just getting stuck in it. Like, what do you say to them to get out of that? Because there's people who aren't sharing the gospel because they, they, they think it's useless because of, you know, if people are predestined, then why would we even share the gospel? God's going to get them there anyways. And there's people who are, you know, living terrified that they're not a Christian because they are in sin that they can't get out of and, and whatever. So they're like, I'm not a Christian. And they're just so, focused on like the free will aspect of it and like I, I don't you know like what do you say to a young person or anybody in christianity that because it is annoying to me i i, I get annoyed with it because i'm like guys like we got to share the gospel and we got to do this thing and it's it's hard i understand it's hard but it feels like um vince w would talk about like sometimes satan just will will put an idea in your head and it'll just nest nest in your in your head and and like ruin your faith and i don't want that to happen anymore but i've seen it happen in my own life with my own friends and i've gotten stuck in some sort of things like this so i mean what do you what do you guys have to say to that <laughs> i would say I, yeah i don't know if nick wants to go first but i'm happy to comment on it um hey there's there's two things that are true in the world one is 
we're sinners and we're accused and darkness wants to accuse us and we fall short and we're not good enough. And, and all of that is absolutely true. And, uh, and so the devil, the darkness gets a hold on people because of accusation that they can't defend themselves. Yeah, I really did do that. Yeah, I really, I'm not great. I've, I've failed in a thousand ways and, um, some imagined and some very real, but that's not the whole truth. It says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony about it. Here's the full truth. I'm greatly loved. God loves me. God is for me. Jesus died for me. And I, my testimony, I have joined his story. I am forgiven. I am washed. And that is my identity. My identity is a favored son. My identity is forgiven. My identity is heaven. And I'm, 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 I'm building my life in the goodness of God, not in the sinfulness of man. And Jesus is inviting me into my future. (laughs) He has washed my past. He's forgiven my past. He has promised me a future. He gives me his presence, um, and his Holy spirit for, and, and his word for my present. And, and, and really all I need to do is walk with God and, And when faith gets complicated, I I take people back to 2 Corinthians 11.3. Paul says, I fear for you, lest as the serpent deceived Eve, so you be led astray from simple devotion to Christ. The idea that we're going to understand God, (laughs) God is way bigger than our heads. I mean, the next verse in Romans 11, the very concluding verse says, oh, the, the unfathomable ways of God. His ways are past knowing who is given to God that God should give back to him. Um, but to him, through him, for him, all things are, are, are bring glory to him. And so this is, this is the most powerful verses. The most powerful song is Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And, and you remember that every day and you make your identity in that every day and you're going to have a joyful Christian life. Not that we shouldn't think about these things. Not that theology isn't important. I do not believe that our mind, uh, we can love God with all our mind, that, that faith is going to contradict our mind. I think it transcends our mind though. Nick, go ahead. I think I'm going to say something similar in different words, very different words. Um, I think that the idea, you know, when, when people struggle really heavily with theological doctrines that seem to harm their faith, what I found in my life is is that I wasn't really struggling with the sovereignty of God. I was I was struggling with my own sovereignty because what I wanted to do was be able to encapsulate the idea, have it in my own mind, and be sovereign over it mentally myself. And what Tom said is right. God is, if not infinite, a nearly infinitely complex being. And he has revealed to us a portion of his will we call his revealed will. And there's some stuff he has not told us about what he's doing, which is his secret will, right? And what 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 we're always tempted to do is demand from God his secret will while neglecting or ignoring his revealed will. And I just see that constantly. I see that with younger people because they want to know what's going to happen in their future. They want to know what God's will is, blah, 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 blah. God doesn't tell you that. He tells you to believe as Christ, follow his way, grow in godliness, be steward over your life, do what you will, right? In freedom, right? And so... Um, there, but there's certain ways in which human beings reach out for these truths. And so we're told certain things about them in the scriptures. And, but the problem is, is that our ability to reason well theologically with God is very, very poor because it's like, it's one thing to try to reason scientifically from one thing to another, 
And but you don't know what you don't know when you do that. I mean, imagine what you don't know about what you don't know when you're reasoning about God. It, it's pretty bad. And so the the human the capacity for theology is quite limited. And that's one of the reasons why I think God um, created the religion of Christ as a embodied religion in the man Jesus and as an inscripturated religion in the scriptures. Because he wanted us to believe in his Christ and to read and, and acknowledge his scriptures and to accept the conclusions that he told us. Do what we can to figure out the dynamics of them, right? But what happens when younger people begin to lose their faith about this is they're trying to construct a theology about a God they can't understand on that level. They're trying to access, They're trying to grab a hold of God in a way that God has stepped back from them instead of believing what he's offered them. And they're trying to demand from God his secret will rather than accepting the gr- the gracious gift of his revealed will. And there's this place in the book of Ezekiel, I'm reading Ezekiel now because we're going to preach through this next year, where the elders of the Israelites come to Ezekiel and they want to, quote, inquire of God, right? They want to ask God what's going to happen because they're in exile and they're, they're fighting all these people and like they're kind of in prison and they're trying to figure out what's going to happen. And God's response to Ezekiel is like, what in the heck do you think you're doing? I have given you my will every day through Ezekiel to repent and believe and to do what I told you to do and quit being idolaters. And like, I've been, what do you mean inquire of me? Like I haven't told you what I want. This is insane. Like, and God like flips out on them and is like, you have no idea what you're even asking. I'm not going to tell you. That's the whole point. Go and do what I said. And like, as a believer, like we have to recognize that either at what, see, because all through the Bible, God is constantly trying to prove to people what he's just plainly said about them what Tom said, that he's good and that he's sovereign. He's both of those things, right? He's sovereign. That is, you can trust him with your future because he can work it out. He's able to do it. And what he's working out is a good thing, not a bad thing, right? And so you can trust him. If you will trust him, you're not going to tear your mind apart from the inside. When you start tearing your part of mind from the, mind apart from the inside, that's evidence that you don't trust him. Because you can only survive mentally if you can figure it out. Well, that's not the way this goes. Can I just give two scriptures to just support this? Deuteronomy 29, 29 almost says identically. The things that are revealed belong to us and our children, but the secret things belong to the Lord. And the other one is David in Psalm 131. My heart is not proud. My eyes not haughty. I don't involve myself in matters that are too great for me but I have become like a weaned child on his mother's lap. I have, he's saying, I have quiet, he says, I've quieted and calmed my soul like a weaned child on his mother's lap. That I, I, I saw these huge things that were too great to figure out, to, con, to, to control, and I, cal- I spoke to my soul, calm down. <laughs> You're trying to be God. You need to wean yourself away from trying to figure everything out and and rest in God, rest in his love, rest in his goodness, rest in his salvation. I think it can be profitable to go through the process of trying to figure out how God is both utterly sovereign and great and amazing and bigger than everything and to have a really big God, right? Because if you believe in Arminianism the wrong way, you end up with a God that is so passive in affirming our free will relative to our own salvation that she's that God is like this old woman with a cane hitting the window trying to get the 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 squirrels to leave her bird feeder alone like you can get right and that's a really now that and that's a bad way to believe in their many of you if you believe in a certain kind of Calvinist view that can drive you insane as well all all you William Cooper that you just like you're like am I saved am I not saved what's God's secret will right if you're believing in Calvinism in such a way as to make your view of God and his sovereignty and his greatness 
bigger, great. And the effect on your soul will be you will love God more. And you'll feel smaller, but not in a humiliating way, but in a humbling way. You see, it'll produce godliness. If you are believing in Calvinism in a way that is making you go crazy, make you hate God, like make you feel like then you're then whatever is right in Calvinism, you're either not believing it or you're not believing it the right way. Right. In Arminianism, it should increase your view that God is um, is universal, that he is loving all people, that he is entirely good in how he's done salvation. Right. And those sorts of things. And if, and if that is increasing your faith in God, great. But you've got to remember that Calvinism and Arminianism are conceptualizations. They are a setup we make in our own mind about how we are understanding God. They are not true and they are not God. Paul said it this way, who had the greatest revelation of anybody on the planet. We know in part, <laughs> then we'll know fully. We only know in part. And so even like in a the very things, dim mirror, even the things we know or think we know, we, we really don't fully know. Those are only small portions of the full truth of it. And so it should cause tremendous humility around the whole subject. Yeah. Agree. Great. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I don't have anything else. I don't have, I mean, any other questions? I, I opened us. Can Nick close us in prayer? Yeah. You want to pray? God, I pray that, um, so this conversation, obviously we can't encapsulate like hundreds of years of super technical arguing about all this stuff. Um, but I, I hope that people will take away that, um, that you have allowed people to reason about you because it shows that they want to think your thoughts after you. They want to know you better. They want to reason through these things. And you've even invited us to do that to a certain extent. And I, and I know that there's people, um, who are listening to this that have done that. And it has encouraged them. And I, I pray that you would help them to know you better that way. I pray for people who feel oppressed by some of these things, that you'd free them from that. They would recognize that that's not your intention. And that's not what, why you've revealed what you yes, revealed God. in Scripture. And I pray that they would yes, sense really strongly that you want to you show how great you are. You want to show how good you are. And you want to do it through your word. And that they don't need some complete, huge superstructure of theological propositions in their mind. To know you, you've revealed yourself in the man Jesus Christ personally and in the scriptures in a way that we can understand. And I pray that you would call people into that trust toward you. And I pray that you would also um, help us to mature in such a way as to not divide over such conceptualizations that we have. That we're to look to Christ, we're to look to your word, and we're to realize that these, these concoctions that we make in an attempt to understand you better, which may be good, should but not be used to put a stumbling block in front of the weak or to cause anyone to stumble or be scandalized in how we believe them, either in the church or those um, watching the church. And so we pray that you would help us to be faithful and leading folks to, to the Christ that is and you, the God who is, and not, and not a parochial conception that we have of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, that's it. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Um, make sure to like and subscribe and follow and share this and do it all all those fun things we will see you guys in the next one goodbye